Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, voting rights and federalism. And Richard, our conversation today is occasioned by a bill in Congress that's pretty central to Democrats' policy agenda. This is H.R. 1, known as the For the People Act. And this is a pretty sweeping piece of legislation that would greatly extend the federal government's role in setting election standards, campaign finance standards, in some cases, public ethics standards. And because Democrats have spent a lot more time thus far speaking out in favor of it than Republicans have opposing it, you could be forgiven for thinking that this is a feel-good, common-sense piece of legislation, just get more voters to the polls. Uh, that's the way it's been sold. You wrote recently for Defining Ideas that it's a lot more complicated than that. So let's explore some of the reasons, and we'll just do top-line some of the policy things here. This would create a lot of new federal standards for voting, from mandating auto-enrollment of voters to same-day voter registration to vote-by-mail requirements, even allowing sworn affidavits in lieu of voter ID. So, Richard, the opposition to these kinds of measures is often referred to in terms of trying to restrict the franchise. Is that a fair characterization? No. I mean, there are two kinds of errors with the franchise. One is you keep people out who ought to be in. The other is you let people in who ought to be kept out. It would be a terrible mistake to assume that having ineligible people vote is of no consequence when they could turn the election. So like everything else in this world, instead of it being a one kind of error that you could easily stop, it's a two kind of errors that you have to trade off against one another. And uh, if we do have a substantive rule that aliens cannot vote, that former prisoners cannot vote, that people cannot vote from outside of their own jurisdiction and so forth, this is a very elaborate situation. For years, when one parted to do these elections, the authentication problems uh, that you had to face gave rise to many very exacting standards uh, because people realized that the risk of fraud increases as the chain of custody becomes uh, more fragile. If somebody were to tell you, oh, well, we haven't had fraud with doing it this way, it doesn't follow if the systems of custody control are tight, that when they get relaxed, the same kinds of behaviors are going to take place. Uh, the fundamental principle of economics is that people respond to incentives, and if there are greater opportunities to shift an election by engaging in some form of illegal conduct, for which the sanctions are very weak, you're going to do it. So let me just give you one example of a petition which I think is particularly odious. Uh, uh, you want to get on an airplane, you have to show a picture ID. Nobody's going to let you on an airplane by having an affidavit signed in front of somebody or nobody whom you don't know, attesting to the fact that you are the person whom you are. If you want to get into any building at NYU Law School, you have to show your picture ID in order to do so. Why it is in an election? Uh, that people would be allowed to get these kinds of affidavits and present them as substitute for pictures is a completely improbable uh, situation. People have to have their IDs of one kind or another for 99 other functions that they discharge each day. Why would you want to dispense with this? Well, it's just an obvious chance for you to get people whom you think to vote who ought not to be able to vote. And I think under this situation, the Democrats think that by and large, the sort of the illegal alien or the undocumented 
persons and so forth, are more likely to vote Democrat than they are Republican. Uh, so the chances of the fraud going in one direction relative to the other direction are great. And I see no reason whatsoever why it is that one would want to call this kind of elementary precaution a form of voter repression. I would call the other situation an inexcusable and open invitation with respect to fraud. If it's not allowed in any other kind of system of identification, it should not be allowed here. Those provisions that I mentioned in the course of asking you the the first question, this involves a big expansion of federal power, but the, the Constitution has a fair amount to say about when voting procedures are left to the states and, and where Washington can play a role. Are, of the, the menu that we described earlier, are, are there aspects of this bill that were it to pass strike you as particularly likely to run into roadblocks if it were to end up in court? Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of situations. There Basically, there are two different schemes. What one has to understand about the original Constitution, after its multiple permutations, it still plays a role, is that there are three different systems for the election of representatives, for the representation of senators, and for the election of the president. Uh, representatives are essentially a popular body. They couldn't figure out what the popular requirements should be uniformly. So what the federal standard says is, use that standard of eligibility, which is used by the state for the most generous of its situation. So that part of the state, which has the broadest standards for suffrage, that determines what the House is. And it's a election. In the original Constitution, the Senate was chosen by the state legislature, and what happened is there were a, a set of rules uh, which said, oh, ho, when you want to start to do with this, the, the states in the first instance can set the time, place, and manner uh, for legislation, uh, but it can't select the place for choosing senators. That was a reference to the oldest system. And so you then have to ask exactly how broad is time, place, and manner that the states could regulate. It's critical because except for the senatorial provision, uh, the federal government is entitled to override at any time of the states with respect to this. If you think time, place, and manner covers everything, uh, then you could say at least for congressional elections, now for both the Senate and for the House, uh, it's a full hand to the uh, federal government, even though they've never exercised it. But it seems pretty clear to me, if you actually look at the way in which the system is put together, time and place are pretty evident. The tricky term turns out to be manner. And I think manner has to do with the mode in which people are going to be selected. It tells you how you get to vote, but it doesn't tell you who is going to be eligible to vote. Uh, so I do not think that anybody at any time in the history of the Constitution thought that if you wanted to have women's suffrage, all that Congress had to do was to pass a law and say that this was a manner of voting. Uh, we had the 19th Amendment precisely because it was understood that this was a major structural change. Under this particular statute, there are provisions which say that uh, felons um, uh, once released are all entitled to vote. The Democrats think they're going to get more of these votes than the Republicans will, which is why they're for it. But that's not a time, place, or manner restriction. That's a substantive restriction. Under the basic rule of constitutional interpretation, those powers which are not delegated to the federal government are retained to the states. And so I think there's a very strong argument. I think it's a winning argument uh, that the even with respect to congressional elections, uh, eligibility requirements cannot be determined or preempted by the federal government. Then when you start looking at the president, remember, this is a different beast. 
he is supposed to be selected by uh, the Electoral College. And the Electoral College was essentially meant to be a deliberative body, uh, not a one body, but deliberative bodies in states. The way you know that is they start talking about how you select the electors, and then they exclude certain people who have public office from taking that role. If the electors were simply people who were pledged and had no discretion, there would be no reason why you couldn't have your Aunt Tilly or anybody be an elector because they're not doing anything. Uh, but the original sense of this body was that the electors were deliberative, and so therefore you had to exclude people who had some kind of conflict of interest. Uh, now, uh, when you start to figure out what's going on, it turns out what the provision uh, for the president starts to say is that the electors are chosen by the legislature. There is no time, federal, time, place, or manner override in the presidential section the way there is in the congressional section. And so if what you want to do is to say, look, we're going to take this out of the hands of the state legislature and give it to somebody else, I think that's just a flat-out constitutional violation, and you have to fix it by some kind of an amendment, which nobody is going to propose. Because if you look at the bill, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see any effort to draw any differentiation between congressional and presidential elections in terms of the degree of federal oversight. And, and that strikes me as being just uh, very dubious. Uh, what does the state legislature mean? I'll just mention one quick point. Is that I think there was a dreadful Pennsylvania decision which said that the state constitutional court could usurp the legislature to the extent that it perceived that the legislature was acting in violation of some rather vague state constitutional provision. But even that decision doesn't give the federal government the right to do it. At most it would do is to say that the states can somehow or other hedge in the power that the legislatures have I think that's a federal constitutional question that the Pennsylvania court was wrong. Uh, but even if I'm wrong about this, uh, I think it's pretty clear that they cannot take away from the state legislature, uh, plus or minus judicial oversight, uh, the power on how it is that you set the electors by choosing the president. And all the reforms have essentially always tried to do things at the state level because people realize that the federal government was blocked. Let me ask you about a couple of other issues embedded in this legislation that were a little outside the scope of your column. Uh, one of the things this bill would do is force every state in the nation to adopt a practice that at present is employed in a handful of states, and that is to, in an attempt to short-circuit gerrymandering, take the power of redistricting out of the hands of the state legislatures place them with an independent commission that would theoretically be free of, of domination by any one party. What, what do you make of that proposal? Well, there's no such thing as an independent kind of, uh, commission which is free of domination by one party or another. Um, we've had all sorts of independent commissions. For example, when we start to think about the National Labor Relations Act, the Federal Communications Act, and so forth, uh, these have commissions, and it turns out that they have five votes, and the tie vote breaking the tie-breaking vote always goes to the president in power, so you see three to two. These commissions, in fact, they're going to have to be selected by somebody, and unless you go randomly through the telephone book, uh, there's going to have to be some degree of party control. If you have an even number, there will be deadlock, and if you have an odd number, there will be domination, so there's really no particularly good way to do this. It's also the case, I think, in effect, that when you start to do this, the, the sort of general understanding about reapportionment from the beginning is that the Equal Protection Clause um, will play with, against states a constraint on the way in which they can do business, uh, but it doesn't allow you to take the thing away from it. What it says, in effect, 
Does Congress shall have the power to enforce this provision with appropriate legislation? Uh, that phrase appropriate means it has to be to some extent proportional to the problem at hand. And I think the words proportionate have never been read to allow you to switch the jurisdictional locus from the state to the federal government. And I'm pretty confident that in this particular situation, this independent commission could not be put into place. Uh, it would have to be done through the state legislatures as such. I think the state legislatures could decide that they wanted to do a system which does not revolve on a current kind of commission. You know, uh, we flip a coin and if the Democrats get it, they get four more seats in Illinois than the Republicans. If the Republicans get it, it goes the other way around. Uh, uh, but I think, in effect, that you may be able to do something that the states want to do by way of a commission or by having a line drawing exercise of one sort. But I don't think the federal government can do this. Um, uh, what's happened is these people do not care about what the Constitution says. Uh, they are just absolutely determined to bring this thing into the federal level. And if they then get their way, these commissions, in fact, will be gerrymandered in some way that nobody will like. Uh, generally speaking, you have a system that's imperfect. You correct the nits. I don't think that there's the kindest case that could be made for saying you have to junk the whole thing. The Democrats were very insistent throughout this last election, more than I think was warranted by the fact that there was no fraud in any particular election. Well, if they think these elections were run pretty well, uh, why are you going to want to change anything on the other stuff? And it turns out that with respect to districting, the truth of the matter quite simply is that nobody has a very good formula to tell you the way the districting ought to run. And unless you can have some real substantive improvement, you're better off sticking with the status quo. Campaign finance is also a part of this proposal. It would mandate that super PACs disclose their funders and it would require the same of, of what are sometimes called dark money groups. That simply meaning organizations that do not presently have a legal obligation to release the names of their donors. Richard, this is often presented as simply an effort towards transparency. The idea being that if these groups want to operate in the public square, it's not asking too much to know where their money comes from. What's your reaction to that argument? Um, I do not like this at all. I mean, at one time I was moderately sympathetic to it. But what happens is we understand today that if you have to disclose uh, uh, the sources of your funding, these people are going to be subject to tremendous pressure, colloquy, abuse, and all sorts of terrible kinds of treatment uh, by groups who simply want to silence them. We've already seen this happen with these people who have elected offices or commissioned. People gather outside the front of their homes and they wave signs around, they hung horns at night and so forth. Uh, we saw this in connection with some of the things having to do with the same-sex amendment in California and other places, is which when people then announce that they're in favor of uh, this particular situation to protect same-sex marriage or to prohibit same-sex marriages, they're subject to major kinds of abuse. Justice Thomas, in one of his decisions, he kind of said that, you know, I used to think about this maybe, but now it seems to me that disclosure is an open invitation with respect to coercion. If somebody wants to do it, that's fine. The other thing I think about this is that uh, as a constitutional matter, I think it's a pretty strong case to say that anonymous speech is constitutionally protected, uh, that you can't tell people if they want to speak that they have to step into the public square. If other people can find out who they are, they can then unmask them. 
uh, that's more difficult to do than I think is sometimes thought. And, and the idea that somehow the all dark money is corrupt, um, what happens is there's no reason to attack the dark money. If it's corrupt, what they're going to do is they're going to give the money to some cause which is itself illegal, and then you punish that particular cause. And if it turns out you want to bring a conspiracy claim, if it turns out there's a front man who's gotten money from a back dark organization, uh, then in effect, I think in discovery, you should be able to do it. Uh, but it seems to me you have to basically first show that there's been some kind of a criminal abuse before you could trigger that particular obligation. Uh, so again, I think in effect that every one of these reforms is bad. Let me give you another illustration of this, Troy. Suppose somebody said, well, everybody really ought to be democratically accountable. So let's get rid of the secret ballot. And the question you have to ask is, do you really want to do that? And so that what happens, you go into a voting booth and you have to announce the fact that you're for somebody when 80% of the people in that district are against you. You're going to be roughed up when you come out. If you're not going to get rid of the secret ballot, then I don't think you should be required to get rid of the campaign. Uh, people with ballots can declare who they're for and people who make contributions can declare whom they're for. But it is not, in my mind, a very healthy thing uh, for one to start putting these kinds of mandates um, in place. And uh, I think that the dangers of abuse are really very, very large, and that one has to basically say, in the end, that that proposal, too, is unconstitutional. I don't think that the problem with this, quote, for the People Act, is it strikes me as like the People's Republic of China. Uh, the word people is a very funny word. If you're protecting individual people, the right of the people to be secure in their homes, what you're doing is you're protecting the rights of all individuals separately against government intrusion. But when you put for the people the way they're doing it's kind of a collective majority is allowed to trample minority. And I think the use of people in that second sentence is something which we ought to be extremely hostile to and that we ought to reject any kinds of proposals to do it. So I don't even like the title of this statute because I think it's highly propagandistic. Final question for you, Richard, because we haven't gotten you on the record on this yet. H.R. 1 has passed the House. It is unlikely to pass the Senate unless the filibuster is dispensed with, which seems unlikely. However, there has been some discussion that shy of a total abolition of the filibuster, Democrats may try to suspend it for just this bill on the theory that the civil rights stakes here are simply too high to let procedure get in the way. I, I think I can anticipate your response to that kind of situational proceduralism, but where do you stand on the broader question of whether the filibuster should endure? Well, I've been always a moderate supporter of the filibuster. I think, let me put it to you this way. Uh, this election is, is a very, very important issue. This transforms everything with high constitutional stuff. The stakes are really very, very high. So I agree with all that, and I think the bill is fundamentally misformed. When I see something that's very, very important, I start thinking of constitutional amendments. I start thinking about supermajorities. And so if there's a case to keep the filibuster, you certainly want to keep it in something like this so that you have to get some degree of bipartisan support. And if you look at what's happened in this situation, uh, the president's uh, plea in his inaugural speech for cooperation between blue and red lasted until about two hours after the speech was over when he started to sign executive orders making unilateral decisions most of which should have been done by legislation. Now, I don't think it's going to be unconstitutional in any way. I think if it's done on an ad hoc basis, it shows complete corruption. But as a general matter, I would never, ever reject the filibuster on substantive legislation. And I think it's also important to distinguish between subject legislation on the one hand and judicial appointments on the other, or even cabinet appointment. You have to fill the bench. 
right? You have to give the president the power to have a secretary of state and so forth. If you start allowing the filibuster there, nobody could get appointed to everything, which is what was starting to happen uh, when Harry Reid lifted this thing. And it started, remember, with the Democrats uh, boycotting Republicans who would be appointed to one or another seat. I just don't think that's sensible. But when you're talking about major legislation, there's no reason why you have to pass this particular bill. And so that personnel decisions are completely different from substantive decisions, and one ought to have a very, very different rule. The thought of doing it for a single piece of legislation is a farce, uh, because this one's very important. Well, so will the next one be very important. They're going to have an immigration bill coming down the road. They're going to have lots of things coming down the road. Um, and so if you do this, uh, then what will happen is the Democrats will do this when they think they could get the majority. Uh, my, you know, the great tragedy, as far as I'm concerned, is when Trump dissipated his support in Georgia and gave the Democrats this very frail majority uh, so that now one or two senators are the only thing that stands in the way between this and what I regard as, as not a centrist program. This is not even Obama three. Uh, this is much further to the left than that. And I think the president, I don't know whether he supports it or not. In fact, it's so inarticulate, you can't even figure out whether he has any thoughts of his own. But I think he has to stand behind his own administration. And these characters sound much more like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, than they sound like uh, even a relatively moderately left-weaning uh, Barack Obama. So I think we're actually in the Republic in a very, very dangerous position. We have no leadership at the top, and we have a bunch of really horrible substantive soldiers being put forward, and a great willingness to send, suspend procedural protections, which I think is very, very dangerous. So I think we're in for very hard times if this succeeds. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.